All right, welcome to Reflection as a Service. This is episode six, James. Are you there? I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) So Reflection as a Service, the podcast about uh, technology, software engineering, and entrepreneurship. My name is Paul Merrill. I'm joined by James Jeffers, and we're looking... That's you, and we're looking to have a great time tonight. We're going to talk about several things. We're going to talk about uh, our favorite technical books. So this is going to be a little bit of a harder technical conversation rather than uh, the, some of the soft conversations we've had in the past. And we're going to be more involved in talking about software engineering rather than entrepreneurship or something else. We're also going to talk about a concept that we came up with a couple of weeks ago that we're calling relationship debt. And so that one will be a little bit softer, but we're going to keep that to the end because I think you guys, our listeners, enjoy the technical stuff from what I can tell. What do you think, James? Uh, Have you done an in-depth survey of all of our listeners? (laughs) (laughs) Because we can get both of them in the same room and ask them. (laughs) What do you you want? Well, what does your mom like? (laughs) That sounds a little rough. No, hey, look, the the two people are our moms. Right, right, right. No, dude, we're up to 186 listens. Grand total? Yes, grand total. And the last episode, episode five, with Spreedley's founder, Nathaniel Talbot, was awesome. People just were all over that. And I think because all 57 of those listens came from, well, 55 of them because the first two are our moms, but the other 55 came from Spreedley, I believe. Yeah, I I talked to a couple of Spreedley people, and they were like, wow, I really enjoyed listening to our boss. So. <laughs> and how often do you get to say that, right? Or how right. often do you hear it? Right. That's a really good thing. On our next podcast, we're planning to have Brian Frick. Uh, I saw him. He, I, I think he's a, a, a local user experience guru. I saw him out at Agile RTP, which is a local meetup group. You can find it on meetup.com. And they were ta- he was talking about user experience, and he had four or five books that he used in his presentation to talk about user experience. And it was just really, really interesting how he went about getting user information and using it to create websites and to create designs that make sense to users. So we're going to have him on, and that should be really fun. He's going to go over some of that. So uh, without further ado, James, would you like to take the pole position here and talk about your favorite, your, your favorite technical book? Yeah, I'll take point. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah, so my favorite technical book has to be Michael Feather's uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And uh, this this is a book that I found uh, quite by accident back in, I want to say, 2007. Um, and at the time, I was working for uh, a startup, and they were actually spun out from a previous company that, you know, was... Uh, bought up by some other companies during the dot-com bubble around 2000. And, of course, when that all crashed, uh, the company began to divest various parts of itself, including this this company, which is basically ad-serving technology. And uh, by the time I joined them, they had uh, a good you know, 10-year uh, long history of developing this product, but not uh, no developer tests. And so um, I'd be getting a little bit test-infected by that point, um, getting into TDD um, and uh, other you know, uh, tool sets to support that. Uh, but I was really frustrated trying to deal with this code base because it seemed like you know, if you looked at what TDD was telling you to do, if you went to the, uh, like the, the uh, JUnit website and the examples, um, you know, it looked like they were developing products from scratch. And here I was with this you know, monstrous code base 
that was so entangled and so difficult to piece apart. Uh, it was really hard writing tests for it. And you know, I've come to sense learned that if you have a hard time writing a test for some code, that's usually a sign that you know there's something wrong with the code, <laughs> structurally speaking, right? Um, but at the time, I was like, I really just need I need I need some good advice on how to get started. And I just came across this book, like walking in Barnes Noble one day, and uh, I saw it. and I was like, oh, I wonder what this is. I started reading it. and I was like, Oh, it's like Michael Feathers heard my prayers and said, I'm going to write you a book. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what happened. If you read the preface, I'm pretty sure that's what he, he talks about. There's James Jeffers' prayers. Yeah, <laughs> and so you know you crack the book open and like he just starts going into, hey, you've got this horrible code base that you've you've been told you need to make changes, but you you can't make changes without tests, and you can't write the test unless you make changes to the code, and where do you start? And uh, I remember reading the sections about testing themes and sense points in the code, and it just started making a lot of sense, and you know that gave me enough to go on. I can go into the code base and found some classes that I felt I could test without making many changes to and just kind of getting the ball rolling from there. And, you know, the other complication was that the code base I was working with was all, you know, uh, C++, not Java, uh, not in these fancy languages that had uh, all kinds of, you know, um, uh, mind share going for it. Uh, it was uh, a language that uh, was becoming less and less uh, um, popular, uh, C++. So, you know, I had to not only invent the strategy for how to attack this code base, but I also had to start quilting together some some toolkits. And some of the tools got better with like the boost um, testing libraries and what as time went on. But at the start, there really wasn't anything but like CPP unit and uh, you know some some sketchy notes on the internet about how to get it going. But uh, aren't, that, doesn't he use C plus plus in the book as the the tool to um, as as examples? There are a couple, but I think. Okay. Memory served me. It's mostly Java, which okay. wasn't bad. I mean, it's you know once you kind of got the concept, you can kind of roll with it. And um, I think the other thing that I really liked about the book was um, by having the examples, uh, like you know the code examples where he's talking about, okay, well this is how we're going to do a method extraction, and you know, we're going to kind of step through uh, uh, you know finding scene points in this code. Um, a lot of that carried over you know later on trying to teach other people. Um, about how to go about writing tests, and because I think you and I have both experienced where we go into coach someone, and you're like, well, here are the principles, and then people kind of cross their arms and say, yeah, 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 that stuff's great, but uh, I'm working with real code here, and it's easy <laughs> to get under test, and um, you kind of say, well, let's take a look at it, like bring me your, bring me the worst thing you can find, uh, and you look at it, and you're like, that's pretty bad, uh, <laughs> but then you, you know, you spend a few minutes and you start, you know, putting the stuff under test. And then you slowly start to step through. Okay, well, what's preventing us from instantiating this code? Oh, okay, we've got dependencies that you know are going to boot up the rest of the system. Okay, well, let's stuff that out. Let's you know, let's, there's some techniques you can start to use. And but I think you know the, they're all in the book. And just reading the book gives you a sense that you know other people, other other sailors have been on those seas, and they're they're kind of telling you, yeah, it's it's a little bit harrowing, but you know, if you if you attack the, the right way, you can make it. And you know, there's plenty of people that have have made it, and, and you will too. Yeah, and I think you turned me onto this book, and I just have to say that all the one, all the books that we're going to talk about tonight, at least the the two that I want to talk about in this one, they're written by some of these these guys that um, they're kind of the foundational folks in computer science as far as I'm, for for the modern modern. <laughs> 
um, era of computer science, I guess, like after punch cards. But there, there's some of the some of the folks that have kind of written the foundation for what we do every day. And the Michael Feathers book that you're talking about, working effectively with legacy code, I think you turned me on to it. And there were some really, really good points in there. And just the idea of yes, I'm going to write a test. No, it's not going to test everything that this code does because I can't possibly do that right now, but it's going to give me assurance that if I break X, I know it and then go from there. I think that's a step that so many people are just not willing to take because we have this feeling like we have to test every piece of the code when we're doing it. Sometimes being able to test the code means changing the design of the code. Right, right. And I think, well, I know I have, I've, I've been uh, working with some folks that they get a little bit leery when you're talking about making any changes to, to the code just for the sake of testing. And I, I think that kind of indicates how they feel about testing, that, you know, testing is like something that you would do, but it's not really necessary to, you know, the creation of the software product. And in my mind, it's like, well, no, testing, it's more than just the after-the-fact, you know, revelation of quality. It's, it's also a design tool. So I'm not nearly as squeamish about making changes to the code under test in order to make it easier to test. Um, to me, Absolutely. Like, that's part of building in, you know, quality for without going too deep into what, what quality means. But it's a way of uh, building quality into the product before you get to the inspection stage. Um, and that's got a lot of benefits. But, um, yeah, I mean, that book definitely, you know, kind of shows you techniques that you can, you know, build that those little steps of confidence to, to get to a point where you're like, okay, like I just want to build, I think as Michael Feathers calls them, characterization tests. Like we're not here to, to to test everything, to test all the cases. We're just here to, you know, kind of note what the behaviors are and kind of get a lock on those. And then we can go back and we can be confident about refactoring it because if we change the behavior, you know, chances are we're going to trip one of those characterization, characterization tests. And we'll know, okay, something changed. Uh, maybe that maybe the change we just made was a little too much. We can dial that back, try again, uh, and go from there. Yeah, yeah, and and I think um, he covers that. And the, the whole process kind of snowballs. I mean, you start out with these pretty big, broad test cases, like your your. I, I guess he refers to them as characterization tests. It's been a long time since I've even looked at the book, but um, starts out with those. And what happens is, as you start teasing things apart you gain more and more confidence over the code because you're more and more able to write more tests to, to make sure you know what the code does. So it's kind of a, there's kind of a positive feedback loop involved in that. A virtuous cycle. A virtuous cycle, is that what it is? That sounds, it mean, um, how many times have you been working on a product where you, know, you don't have those tests in place and um, you, know, you get that, that change request that comes down from on high and they're like, well, we need the product to, to do this one thing. And you're like, oh, okay, that should be no problem to add. And you're like, that should take us a day. And you go in and you, you make that one change. And then, you know, you you ha kind of hand it back to the pipeline. And then, you know, the QA department or whoever gets a hold of it. And they're like, yeah, everything looks good. And then it gets deployed into the real world. And it begins to have contact with customers and, and data and whatnot. And then you realize you've subtly changed the behavior of the system in a way that totally breaks and now you're panicked because you're like, oh, we broke something. So now you want to go back and fix your fix. You make another change, and then it's like, it's like trying to get that piece of the, that last one piece of the carpet in the room nailed down. And as soon as you get one corner in there, you look over your shoulder and you've popped another corner out. 
That's, that, to me, that's like the nightmare. When you live without without a nice regression framework, whether or not that's going to be a bunch of characterization tests or automated black box testing or whatever, you know, you kind of get into that cycle of uh, it's like a negative feedback cycle. You get panicked because you know there's a change that, that something's wrong. So you make right. a hurried fix, and you've you've it's like what's what was like the the metric about um, how many bugs you introduce, you know, per line of code, and it works out to where I don't know, it's like almost a dozen new bugs every time you add a line of code. Oh no! Something <laughs> ridiculous where you're like, I don't even know why I'm getting up in the morning. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that you know, for for really large code bases, even the smallest changes, like you're you're just injecting more problems. But if you've got tests, then hey, you know, life's a lot easier. And if you got tests that are well written, uh, yeah, it's it's like a, a it's like a, a flywheel, you know, that's going to get the rest of the engine moving. It's an right. amplification of productivity and uh, and quality. Right. Well, so that's a really good one. So working effectively with neg- with legacy code by Michael C. Feathers, it's a really good one to go out there and. And pick up on Amazon. And then uh, I was going to talk about refactoring, improving the design of existing code by Martin Fowler. Um, if you don't know Martin Fowler, you, you should get to know his work. He, I believe he's a principal at ThoughtWorks, or um, he's, he's one of the folks who got that place going. And um, anyway, just a really, really sharp guy. I everything I, a lot of what I know about programming, I learned by reading books by him and some of these other folks. But um, refactoring is about, it's a term that we use very, very loosely in software engineering these days. I believe that a lot of people use it and have never read the book and don't understand what it means. But basically, if you're making a change to code and it changes the functionality, you are not refactoring. You are doing something completely different than that. Refactoring is about changing the design of the code without changing the functionality of the code. Um, so things like extracting methods, you see a whole bunch of code in one place that, that is duplicated again and again and again. Being able to take those four or five lines that are duplicated, uh, change them into a method, and then repeating that, uh, just calling the method in, instead of that. Things like uh, not using magical numbers, um, not having hard-coded constants throughout your code. There are just a lot of really, really good um, improvements here, being able to using refactorings to separate concerns between classes. Um, it's one of the things I, I find a lot. You end up with some giant class that somebody's written somewhere and it has it's doing a whole bunch of different things. Uh, the responsibilities are not clear. The metaphor for that class is no longer clear. It's just some ambiguous piece of bits, I guess. And uh, you know, you get in there and you start seeing, oh, well, this goes and deals with, uh, you know, creating files and it also goes off and it um, creates unique identifiers and it does this and does that. And um, once you start teasing those things apart with refactoring, you start to see that, okay, well, maybe I should have some kind of unique identifier creator. Uh, maybe there's a factory for that. Maybe I should separate out this part that's dealing with files into its own class so that we have a clear understanding of what it does. But um, I really, I really am not sure that I was really even comfortable with code until I started reading that book and got into it. It's also probably the easiest book that I read. The back of it is all a catalog of refactorings, James. The first six or eight chapters are relatively easy to read. And then Martin Fowler in general has gone back and written a number of other books. I remember there was one, one written in uh, the early 2000s called... Um, 
executable UML. And he was trying to look at what coding was going to be in the future and trying to push push our world forward. And it was very interesting. I think um, things like, I, I guess it was rational rows before yeah. they were swallowed by IBM were also trying to do the same thing. Um, and, and I think some of those things are really good ideas. We just haven't quite gotten to the point um, that that he was envisioning yet. But really sharp guy, Martin Fowler, refactoring, improving the design of exist, existing code. Um, did you have other other books that you wanted to bring up? Um, you know, I don't know if it's a, if it's a technical book, um, but it's one I came across when I was in school. Um, and it's the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Are you familiar with that one? No. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to remember how, oh yeah, so this is back when I was going back to, to school for computer science uh, in a grad school program. And um, the first year, uh, because I was coming from a non-computer science background, they were like, well, you're you're going to have to take you know classes to get yourself up to speed. And one of them was a intro to computer science class course. And I kind of looked at the syllabus uh, and I said, oh, there's this, you know, here are the, the books that they're going to use. Now, it turns out when the, when the course started, they had switched from um, one person teaching it to another one, and they didn't end up using the text. But I had this, this thick volume called Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, and it was written by a couple of guys at MIT uh, way back in the day. Um, and they've done continuous reprints for a while now. And it's it's kind of a weird book because it's, it's based on functional programming. Uh, in fact, one of the, the little picture on the front shows uh, like a like a woodcutting with a lambda uh, symbol on the front, I guess to indicate like we're going to talk about lambda expressions. <laughs> now, for someone, you know, I had not had a whole lot of instruction about how to structure a program or why you would write it a certain way. I was kind of used to looking at books, for examples, and then kind of putting them into whatever IDE I had and then running it and hoping that it worked and kind of learning that way. Slow and, uh, you know, there's like... Um, I'm trying to think of, um, I think it was the, the guy who invented judo, and he, he kind of, um, he broke down the practice into like two things. There's kata, which are like the structured um, elements of transmission of, of teaching techniques from one person to another. And then there's the kind of freestyle practice they would have. I think it's called randori, but don't shoot me if I got that wrong. And it's it's completely kind of a, turns everything on its head, right, because it's not structured at all. And you're kind of expected to, you know, apply the techniques, you know, almost in an, imp- in an improv fashion because you've got somebody who's not going to come at you with a with a kata. And so it's it's almost like a freestyle sparring match. And so people were always asking, well, what's more important? Is it katas or is it randori? And he says, well, you, you can't have one without the other, meaning that, you know, you need the katas because you need, you need the um, – the, the structure of the kata to transmit all of these important lessons that have impacted the kata, right? And you can study the kata for years and years and years, and you're always going to pick up new things. And then, but you also need the opportunity to apply this stuff in a real-world context. And, you know, without gouging people's eyes out and breaking limbs, you know, the randori with, with kind of like rules was a way to, to get people to, to practice stuff. And so I kind of felt like I'd been randori all the way up to that point. And then this book kind of reading it was like, oh, well, well, this is like very, very uh, uh, structured approach to showing you like why programs are written the way they are and all of the uh, elements that go into it. But 
the entire book is written as if you know you've got like a, a Lisp or a Scheme compiler in front of you, and they're just showing you how to write programs using functional programming. So I kind of started reading this book about a month before the course started, and I was like, oh, this is fantastic! Like we're going to be using functional programming. And I get in the class, and of course it was not. It, everything was um, everything was like basically uh, written for uh, C, C++, and Java. And so I was a little confused, and I, and I kind of put the book away, but I, I started coming back to it as I was finishing up grad school and continue to read it. And it's considered by some people to be like a classic. And I still have my copy here somewhere on the bookshelf. Uh, and uh, it's it's just a way to read. You go back and you read it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten all this stuff. And how you begin to recognize everything they're talking about in a very kind of like not uh, – you know they don't they don't make a point of highlighting it for you and saying and this is something that will carry forward for the rest of your career. <laughs> it's like you're reading and you're like, oh, like how many times have I seen this in this other language? Like the principles are all, you know, illuminated, um, and you recognize it from your career. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. This is why, this is why things are the way they are. Um, so I highly recommend it. Structure and interpretation of computer programs by Abelman, Sussman and Sussman. Um, you, you can find it on the web. They've got the full text uh, at their site, which is mitpress.mit.edu slash SICP. And um, you can order the books from Amazon. I'm sure you can find used copies everywhere. Um, and I think it's – I'm not sure if they're still teaching the course, but I would be surprised if they're not. But Yeah, you know, it's funny you were talking about how you do a lot of work and you understand things at a practical level. And then sometimes you'll go back and read something and it'll completely – change the way you think about what it is you were doing or reorganize your thoughts in your mind. Um, that's some, that's really what I want to gain out of this podcast. You know, reflection as a service, my, if, if you haven't heard the story, um, the, the reason that I came up with that name was because I'm at some talk that I was doing and somebody came up and said, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is things that people have to reflect on in order to understand. And I, I think there's not enough of that out there these days. I think, you know, we're talking about books here and I know I had an interview, one of my, one of my last interviews, uh, seven, eight years ago. And this, uh, guy who was a little younger than me was sitting in front of me and I, I asked him, he gave me a chance to ask some questions. I said, what's the, what's the most recent book you read? And he says, well, I, I pretty much think books are dead. You can get any information you want from the internet. And uh, that was really disappointing because I, I think a lot of people feel that way. There is a lot of great information on the Internet. We can get a lot of things. However, it's not all peer-reviewed. <laughs> it's not published. Um, these are folks who sat down, and writing a book is hard. Yeah. Writing a book is really, really hard from what I understand. I mean, I, I've only written one small ebook, and it was difficult. Uh, and that thing's only like 50 pages long, James. I mean, that, that that was difficult for me. But writing a book is difficult, and these people sat down and did it. When you have to sit down and write something that you know, it completely changes the way that you think about it. You have to think about it differently. You have to think about how am I going to explain this to someone else. Understanding something is great, but being able to explain it changes your understanding. It, and, and that's for, for someone to do that, to sit down and take that time, I think we owe all these folks a, a big uh, debt of appreciation um, and, and I sure do. I know that I reflect on things differently when I read. I just sat down and started reading Jez Humble's uh, Continuous Integration book again. Yep. And, you know, I get in like 10 pages in and I'm already thinking about things and these ideas are popping into my head um, that I hadn't had in a while and brand new ideas, even though I've read the book before, based on the experience that's happened between the last time I read it and now. Um, so I think it's important to look at these things. I was going to talk a little bit about test-driven development by um, example, who, which is written by Kent Beck. He was kind of the forefather of extreme programming. He wrote 
test-driven development. And really, uh, for all intents and purposes, it may as well be called test-driven design, like you were talking about. I mean, when you're forced to write test cases first, it changes the design of your code in a way that's more testable. And frankly, I think that tested code is good code. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it's important to, to do that. I know test-driven development has helped me understand a different way to write code. Um, it does seem a lot very backwards to a lot of folks writing test cases first. Um, I know a lot of people don't like the idea that test cases break when they change something and they feel very uncomfortable with that. Um, when they have a whole bunch of... Did you mean it breaks because someone has changed the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think a lot of folks who aren't comfortable with test-driven development or aren't comfortable with unit testing or integration testing or just having tests wrapped around their code in general, I think a lot of that... Uh, comes the uncomfortableness is you change something in the code base and you see all this red all over the place and people start banging on your cube wall or whatever or throwing things over the wall <laughs> as the case may be um, showing up with nerf guns and things um, but uh the fact is that that for me is security now uh, when i see things turn red when i make a change it means okay um, there is something giving me feedback about my change i need to understand why it's red uh, because clearly someone else somewhere at some point thought that the change that I've made is not good. So let's figure out what that is, close that loop, and move forward on it. Um, but that book taught me a lot. I I'm, I know you've read it too. Did you have any comments on that one? Well, I was th I was trying to – it's been a while since I've read either the Kent Bet book or the Martin Fowler one. Um, and I remember seeing the refactoring book by Martin Fowler, but I think I also remember reading the Kent Bet book. But it's difficult for me to tease those two apart um, because it seems like they cover a similar territory, which I don't in any way mean that neither one is worth less than the other one. Because I remember reading them both at one point, but I think that just like um, just like the Feathers book, it's an excellent way for someone who you know they're kind of given the task of, well, you're going to be refactoring some of this code one way or the other. Uh, and they're kind of like, if you don't have a mentor, someone to pair with, who's kind of done this before, um, you know, you're kind of sitting there at nine o'clock in the morning, and you're like, well, I gotta get, there. I gotta do this today. Right. <laughs> Where do you go? And it's like, well, you kind of grab the book and you kind of flip to the page you want to go to, and you kind of spend 20 minutes reading one of their examples. And you're like, oh, okay, I, th I can do that. I can do that for this one, for this one section of code, uh, and off you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about it. Um, we came up with this concept of relationship debt this week, and I didn't know if you want to touch on it real quick. Or um, uh, We've got a good bit of material here already. Hopefully it's all useful to our, our, uh, our rabid fan base out there. Um, but uh, I, I guess how did that come up? We were talking about within technical communities and technical teams, it's very easy to consider the idea of technical debt. Uh, whether you deal with your technical debt or not is kind of beside the point for this conversation. But technical debt is basically, if you're not familiar with it, okay, so you're writing a bunch of code, you're putting a bunch of new functions in, a bunch of new features into this application, and after a while you realize, okay, there's there are places where things aren't very comfortable and so-and-so didn't clean up their mess over here, and uh, we need to work on the infrastructure part or we need to go back and think about um, how we're deploying this and do some work there. All those things build up over time and that's called technical debt. And I, maybe you can walk me through the conversation we had. I was I was thinking we were um, talking about how in 
it is it, it seems very often in teams and within relationships in general that you know something comes up and we don't necessarily deal with it we sweep it under the rug and that just builds up and builds up over time if you don't deal with it um and we i called i think i called that relationship debt is that kind of yeah. how the conversation went yeah that's exactly right um we were reflecting on a, on a situation where we both we both knew about a team that um you know there would be issues and uh it wasn't clear that everybody was comfortable uh airing out making them feel uncomfortable about the situation uh and so that was leading a lot of confusion and delay just operating every on a day-to-day basis and i think we were talking about you know like why some people would not stuff up or clear the air well and we and the thing was it was it was second hand for both of us so we don't we don't really know everything that was going on in that particular team it it was you know there, there are three sides to every story you know what one person says what another person says and what actually happened right um so it's kind of hard for us i think um to understand all of it, but it did seem. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just kind of wanted to no, get some well, perspective. I, you know, and let's 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 say that you know, like you said, there's three sides. Then the relationship that I mean, we're building some of it too, right? Because we were not we're not able to kind of crack uh, that that wall of uncertainty. But the, but the notion is that there's this unseen amount of uh, uh, water under the bridge, so to speak. And as long as that's there, that's a that's a huge impedance to to work. And you know, like you're you're not sure how to proceed, or you're not sure you know uh, if you should implement a particular uh, technical direction, because it all comes down to I don't know how so and so is going to react to this. I don't know if they right. want this. I don't know, <laughs> you know, even if it's a great technical solution. I'm sure we've all had a time where we've been like, there's no way this is going to go forward because person X over there just is not going to they're just not going to want it. For, for non-technical yeah. reasons, or for maybe it's a good technical reason, but you you just don't know, and so you you delay or you defer, and it, that friction, uh, that that wall of unknown, uh, you know, mind-numbing jelly, is is I think what we're calling relationship debt. Yeah, yeah. When things build up over time and don't get handled, I mean that stuff just sits there. Um, it's got to be handled some way somehow in order for the relationship to move on and for the team to. And and the relationship to be effective, um, and you know it, it happens in technical teams just like it happens in any other relationship in in your life. Um, so you got to talk those things out. I don't know. Maybe maybe we can put a fork in that one. Maybe uh, I, I don't know how that's going to play. I think it's a very valuable idea. I'm not sure that I understand it enough to talk any more about it. Yeah, maybe maybe we you know perhaps there are people out there who have already cracked this nut. Yeah, um, I can I can instantly think of people out there who you know just like the guy who's like, yeah, your your test of development sounds great, but look at this code I got to work with. Uh, <laughs> all right, so they're gonna cross their arms and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still have to work with this group. I still have to exist in the situation. Like if I know that clearing the air is a good thing and getting all of the assumptions out on the table is a good thing. But uh, I don't think the people I work with are, are up to that, or you know, I'm really not in a position. Like, you can't really impose that on people. Right. So I guess the question is, if you can recognize the the situation for what it is, how do you deal with it? I mean, how do you how do you uh, manage it for yourself? How do you thrive in an environment where you're like, you know, I can't really bring these things up because that you know people may not be ready for that or even want it, right? Um, I think the uh, I've read a little bit about um, folks who are in the uh, nonviolent communication world, and I think they 
there's a term they refer to when you kind of uh, inject your own solution <laughs> into a conversation for something you, you perceive as somebody else's shortcoming. Uh, unrequested diagnosis, right? <laughs> not everybody, not everybody is really, really super happy to hear about your unrequested diagnosis. Or that's you know, exactly treat, right. I was gonna say like it. So it could be, it could be a net negative if you just jump in and say, "Hey guys, I'm gonna solve all our problems. We're gonna sit in this room till we work it out." It may not well, work so well. Yeah, and I, and I mean, yeah. So it seems to me when when there are problems like that, number one, you have to look for times when folks will be receptive. Um. It, that's not all the time. It's easy to know the solution. It's really hard to know how and when to apply it, I think. Um, at least for me, it is. The second part of this would be knowing the proper time and place in terms of your organization. So it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do in a hierarchical organization, James. I think that you know there are plenty of times when an individual is on a team and sees personnel issues or relationship issues that need to be worked out, but it doesn't always feel like it's their place to do it. Um, and sometimes the issue is with the person who is in power uh, or with the person who should not be controlling the power, um, but is for some reason anyway. So I don't know. I, I just think that those things are, are difficult within these organizations. And then when they're cross-organization, I mean, I do think that as, as you mature in your career and you become more of a senior person, it's easier to go to an individual and kind of talk through these things as your skills uh, progress. But I think for, for folks who are not quite at that point yet, you may need help and you may not always be able to find it, you know? Right. Yeah, and I think that can be tough and generate a lot of stress if you if you know something's wrong, but you're, you know, you're kind of stuck in a situation where you're, you're not. You kind of also know that it's it's not something that you by yourself can resolve, and it's unclear about where you can go, and that's probably harder. Like I said, if you're if you're earlier in your career, and you don't have as as much experience and skill dealing with people on a personal level in a professional setting, that can be pretty intimidating. Uh, it kind of it can also be, um, you know, it can also probably also lead to a lot of job frustration because uh, you're like, I gosh, these things are broken, and I don't think I don't think people really get a lot of uh, training or education about how to deal with these situations, especially not in school. Um, but maybe if, you, if you've if you got like an opportunity for an internship or a, um, a co-op opportunity at a, at a company uh, where you are going to be injected in the workforce, if you have a really good mentor, somebody who can take you under their wing and they, you know, they can kind of say, oh, I see you seem to be struggling with some of these issues, here's a good way to deal with them. Um, that's probably pretty valuable stuff. Yeah. And like you said, when you as you get older and more experienced and you know you've got you've you've gotten a few um a few scratches on the paint uh, down the road you, you know you kind of know how to like handle uh you know the situations as they come up at least in, in a better way than you did earlier yeah because uh, i've certainly had you know been under some managers that i just thought were wizards at you know ruffling feathers and you know airing grievances and you know every time that there was an issue uh, if this person got involved, you knew at the at the end of it, like if things were going to be better. Yeah, uh, those are good people to be around. <laughs> those are good people to be around. You learn a lot from those kinds of folks, and they probably, like you said, they probably had a lot of paint scratched off the hood um, in order to get to that point. I would think, or they they grew up with really good uh, examples or mentors somehow, like you said. Um, there is one part of this about. Uh, getting resolved about things. I mean, there are times when you've got this relationship debt that's building up. You've got things that have gone wrong with whatever the team or the, the interpersonal relationship is. 
And um, in order to move on, you you may you can't really do anything about that other person. I mean, maybe you've aired the grievances and kind of tried to figure out what that issue is about. Sometimes people just aren't going to go the same way as you. They're just going to think a different way. You're never going to be able to convince them. And in that case, you just have to become resolved about whatever it is you believe or whatever it is you think or whatever it is you want. And by resolved, I don't mean carrying on and on and on with the same thing. I mean, you're in this place. You're going to have to deal with this other person. They don't think the same as you. Become resolved about the situation and resolve how you're going to interact with these folks from then on um, in, a, in a peaceful, productive way. And a lot, a lot of times that means just uh, setting, knowing that you're going to have to sit, set that situation aside or remove yourself from that particular argument every once in a while or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there, there are a lot of people out there um, who can help you out with this more than myself and James can. But uh, we kind of just wanted to touch on that topic. James, I had one, one more thought. for, Or did you have more about that? I was just going to say if you're out there and you're pounding your fist on the table <laughs> – about how badly we've articulated this, and you've got some good ideas. Um, please do Tell reach us. out to us, and we'd love to know, and maybe we could have you on the show. Absolutely. So uh, catch us on Twitter at Reflection AAS or D. Paul Merrill or J.D. Jeffers on Twitter. Um, you can go to our website and contact us through that, which is reflectionasaservice.com. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple tools that I found this week. Oh, go for it. Yeah, so this is kind of cool. So... Um, well, two that I found in this other situation that just came up today. It was kind of fun. So this guy that uh, I went to high school with, I haven't talked to in a very long time, was on Facebook. And we got to talking, and he says, yeah, it turns out I'm a software developer. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of that myself. And we got to talking, and, and I said, yeah, we need – I said, what languages are you working in? And he says, C, C Sharp and Java. I said, well, I – or JavaScript. I need help with that. And he's like, yeah. I said, I need folks who are involved and in, you know they know how to write RESTful APIs and deal with that kind of stuff. And then single page applications, like pretty much everybody is doing these days. Um, I need developers for that. And he's like, actually, I'm writing my first RESTful API right now. <laughs> and I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. And we got to talking, and I'm, uh, he's like, you know, I'm having a really hard time debugging this. And I'm like, oh, well, have you found Postman? So that's a tool that I was led to a long time ago by other people. It's a Chrome plugin that allows you to send requests to a particular service and get a response back um, and kind of understand a little bit. I think it also allows you to save test cases these days. And I, it did not at the time allow you to integrate with continuous integration and the test cases were not as batchable or automatable as I would have liked, but you can yeah. save save your requests and run them um, in sequence, I believe. Um, you can definitely save them. And then the next thing that I mentioned was something that I found just the other day, which is called Mockable.io. Have you heard of that? I have not. So Mockable.io allows you to set up a response from a RESTful service very, very quickly. So Mockable.io, if you go out to that web page, you'll see that uh, you can basically set up a fake RESTful um, service and allow your client to interface with it. So in other words, if you want to mock out what your server would do, that's one way to do it. Um, so you it's like the opposite of Postman. You would record your, um, your responses and then have something else call into it. So that was cool. And then one other that I found was called API Spark or uh, it's made by RESTlet, I believe, so API Spark or RESTlet. And that allows you to go out and actually create a RESTful service 
on the web very, very quickly. And I say very, very quickly with a caveat, and that caveat is you you do have to do the tutorial. I, I had to do the tutorial. Maybe other people understand the user interface better than I do. But um, it's a very cool thing. You, you can just go out there, set up uh, a data store, which is just a, a database, um, and then that's what's sitting behind your REST service. And, um, and it'll serve up whatever information you put in there, and you can create your endpoints and everything else. Pretty cool. Neat. Pretty cool stuff. So I told these guys about that, this guy about that, and he's like, oh, man, you're a lifesaver, which is kind of cool because I don't get to be a lifesaver very often. But... Um, I hope those helped, and uh, I thought they were really cool. I'm going to use them more as I as I move along, and I thought I'd share them with folks. Neat. New tools. I, I was just looking at Mockable I.O. That's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's a fun one, I think. So, so look, we, we're done here tonight, I think. We're going to have Brian Frick on uh, on the next podcast, which I hope to have out to everyone before Thanksgiving uh, so that everybody has it for their long drives to see all those folks that they care about so much. And, uh, and and eat turkey and all those kinds of things. He's going to talk about the user experience with us. I saw him at Agile RTP. He was really great. If you're in the Triangle area and you haven't gone out to Agile RTP, they have a lot of really great speakers on uh, from time to time. You can find them on meetup.com. This episode of Reflection as a Service is brought to you by Beaufort Fairmont Automated Testing Services as well as Code Providence. Um, my company, Beaufort Fairmont, is based in Cary, North Carolina. We rid the world of bad code, and we do that through automated testing. So we will help you with your automated testing in one way or the other, and we look forward to doing it. Please give us a call at 984-244-2313. We work in C-sharp, Java, JavaScript, Object, Objective-C, and plenty of others. We'll work with Robot Framework, Cucumber, Selenium WebDriver, and many other testing framework tools. Once again, Beaufort Fairmont Automated Testing, BeauftFairmont.com, 984-244-2313. And tell us a little bit about Code Providence, James. Well, Code Providence, I am an independent software vendor, and uh, I write uh, software that helps folk, uh, other folks write software to make a big impact. But you, you're you're pretty awesome at what you do, and you mostly focus in, in Ruby. Yeah, mostly Ruby, although I am starting to bathe in the warm weathers of Elixir. So, Elixir is that? Uh, oh, that's a, that's a that's something new you've been working on, huh? Yeah, so it's um it's basically a functional programming based on the Erlang language. Um, it's got some syntactical sugar and some other nice things. And hey, they have a, a web development framework called Phoenix, uh, which was written by one of the earlier Rails contributors. So it's kind of Railsy. Uh, but I think they're trying to make it so that it's just not Rails reinvented uh, on the Elixir language. So uh, I'm working with that. But I always say my day-to-day stuff is mostly Rails work. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate everybody coming out. Once again, this is Reflection as a Service. I'm Paul Merrill, and this is James Jeffers, my, my co-host here with me. And uh, we've enjoyed it. We hope you guys enjoy it. Please get with us on Twitter, Reflection AAS, D. Paul Merrill, or J.D. Jeffers, or anywhere else. Find us on our website, reflectionasaservice.com. We hope you've enjoyed this, and we look forward to our next episode with you. Thank you so much. 